Okay, thank you. We want to start on time, and um, it'll be a mercy of the Lord if we end on time, uh, but we'll take that mercy. Uh, this is, um, for the purpose of the recording, um, helping your counselees to trust in God's wisdom. We have a lot of uh, material to cover today, and really, even from the start, uh, with Pastor Tiffy's uh, sermon, who is sufficient for the task of talking about the character of God and uh, whether it's his holiness or whether it's his justice or whether it's his wisdom, um, who is sufficient to that task? No one aside from the enablement of the grace of God and the, and the spirit of God uh, to, whom we, to whom we look. But that being said, um, let us do our best in this hour to begin to talk about how you can help your counselees to trust in the wisdom of God and God's character. So let's first of all begin with defining omniscience, defining this matter of uh, God's wisdom, the attribute by which God perfectly and eternally knows all things which can be known past, present, and future. God knows best how to attain his desired ends. God's omniscience is clearly taught then throughout the course of the scriptures. So we might call this in short just God's wisdom. So omniscience is um, God's wisdom, his eternal knowing, knowing all things that can be known, knowing all things that can be known in the past, in the present, and in the future. The Greek word for wisdom is sophia. And when used in speaking of God, it means the infinite, perfect comprehension of all that is or might be, and his ability to so order the affairs of all things in the world as to bring them to his desired ends by use of effective means. And so uh, we see that open theism, we see this idea that God doesn't know, you know, which is being promoted, um, particularly out west, and particularly what I and what I would qualify as liberal uh, thinking, and this has no place in a real understanding of of God and His character and His wisdom. God does know. I would not want to serve a God who is just a little smarter than me, would you? And I would not want to serve a God who was ignorant of the future, maybe had a general idea of how things were going to uh, come together, but not really. I, I have no interest. That that's you and me. I have no interest in that kind of God, but I am thankful that the scriptures tell us that God knows all things. He brings all things to bear upon that knowledge and will glorify himself in all things. And so that is a comfort, I think, to us as we look at this doctrine, this attribute of the character of God. So at the outset, I'm indebted to my study of both A.W. Pink's work on God's sovereignty and Jerry Bridges' uh, work entitled Trusting God. I don't know if you've ever read Jerry Bridges' uh, book on trusting God, um, but in my own experience, I would say that is probably the finest layman's book that you will read in terms of developing an understanding of the sovereignty of God and a trust in God. And if you have not read it, I would encourage you to read it. I think we have some copies here at, uh, at the bookstore. 
And um, I would highly, highly recommend that book to you because it is an outstanding uh, book on uh, trusting God. In fact, you should know that Jerry Bridges was our scheduled speaker for the conference this year. I shouldn't probably tell you that with the plenary speakers that we have today, right, Ira? But um, Jerry Bridges was our invited speaker, and he was coming until he had to have triple by heart uh, surgery, bypass surgery, and had to um, withdraw from being able to be with us. So uh, you, get, you have the next finest slate of speakers known in, in the whole state who have been gathered together, imagine, under one roof. Uh, what a blessing for all of you. Anyway, um, it, is interest, it is important for us to put uh, A.W. Pink before uh, Pink, you know, because now if I say Pink says throughout the course of the notes, you'll know, that, you'll know now I'm not talking about that girl who sings, okay? In the number of years that I've been counseling, it's been my experience to see that um, many issues which I've been confronted with almost always are related in one way or another to one's trust in God. Um, for example, people dealing with depression, with anger, with fear, with worry, with addiction, a difficult marriage, parenting issues, all can be often traced back to one's trust in God. Now you just think about that for a minute. And you ride through each one of those topics and you will see that that is true. That many, many times the person that sits before you for counsel struggles because they don't trust God. In fact, the counselee will often ask, is God in this trial or isn't he? Does God have a purpose for this trial or doesn't he? Can God really make this thing all come together and be good? How can God do that? You see? And so if we don't have a, an understanding of their need to trust in God and to understand in the character of God, we're missing something that's significant for them in terms of our counsel. And so a, as biblical counselors, we have the great privilege of encouraging people to know that God's omniscience means that he is ruling wisely and therefore to learn to trust in his rule. So whatever hurt, whatever heartache, whatever struggle, whatever you're fearful of, whatever you're angry about, whatever difficulty in your marriage, whatever rebellion you must put up with in your teenager, what, what, whatever the issue is, you can learn to develop a trust in the character of God. And that's exactly what our Bibles tell us, right? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his ways and his paths beyond tracing out. And who's known the mind of God? Who's ever given a God that God should repay him for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Right? It's exactly what Paul brings us to see and to understand in uh, the matter of defining God's wisdom. And Paul does that, by the way, just to insert. Paul inserts this doxology in Romans 11, after Paul talks about some of the greatest doctrines that you can read in Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Romans 11, and Paul's uh, response to that is to explain it this way, the depth and the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his ways and his paths beyond tracing out. Who can know the mind of the Lord? Is a, 
And so that, I think, is very helpful for us as we uh, work through them. Because the verse tells us immediately that we will not be able to understand fully the mind of God. Now that's important. In a day of easy answers and quick fixes, we have to be sure our counselees see the difference between trusting in God and being able to explain all that God is doing or allowing. And there is a difference, isn't there? Now what is the difference? Well, I believe that the difference is by helping them come to know the character of God better through God's word. So it is to know his character. It is to come to trust in God's character. When I can't trust in the circumstance, I can trust his character. See? Which is very, very significant. And honestly, many in the church have lost sight of the fact that God is holy and majestic in glory. Now we're talking about coming to trust in God's character. And this often translates into counselees not knowing a proper fear of God. And this is true even of professed Christians, isn't it? Why is it today that the culture as a whole is so unconcerned about spiritual and eternal things? Why is that? Might I suggest to you it is because the church is unconcerned? If the church isn't concerned about it, why should the culture be? If we as the people of God, if we as the ones who profess to follow God, if we're unconcerned about God's holiness, if we're unconcerned about God's majesty, why should the culture be? You see, even among Christians, what, what happened there? I'll be all right. Um, even among Christians, there's so little, we're on page two, even among Christians, there's so little real subjection and obedience uh, to God's word. Maybe I'm looking at the wrong slide. Oh yeah, sorry. I, I, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Why are people so indifferent to the needs of their souls? Boy, don't we see that? Why are they more and more blatantly defiant against the God of heaven, his word, and his Christ? Why is that the case? Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, who by the way knows the truth today. I only take this small caveat but for a minute. Rob Bell tells us that in the end love wins. Now this is a little caveat. Rob Bell tells us in the end that love wins because it's hard to comprehend a God who can eternally punish. Right? And so, somehow, somewhere, at some point, the wrath of God will be finished upon the soul of a man. But Romans chapter 2 and verse 5 says that we store up wrath for ourselves on the day of judgment. Might I suggest to you two things to help? Now, this is to help us to understand the majesty and the holiness of God the justice of God, the righteous wrath of God. Look, we need to be uh, confirmed in these things, don't we, as his followers. Might I suggest to you this, Christopher Hitchens, for every person that picks up a writing of Christopher Hitchens today and believes what Christopher Hitchens says about God, stores up God's wrath against Christopher Hitchens in hell. It doesn't end. It keeps going. 
That's one point. Second point, Christopher Hitchens will be as defiant against the God of heaven in hell as he was while he lived here in this life. And so that never ends. Understand? So it's really, it's, it's something for us to understand why it is that people are so defiant against the God of heaven. You know, the atheists in England are making a big push. And now they're having a, uh, an advertising campaign and putting on buses, you know, live life. There is no God. Enjoy yourself. And so, well, look, look, there's nothing new about that. We know that. But there's a new defiance, isn't there? Romans 3:18 tells us why. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's why. This is why the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures have also been devalued. Even among Christians, it's been devalued. There's so little real subjection and obedience to God's word. You know, we uh, believe that we get to pick our own truth, don't we? And you'll, you'll bump into that in the counseling session as you come. Uh, and I've been counseling now for a number of years, a long enough time to know. And it's changing, I'm telling you, it's changing. The dynamics are changing. I've seen a change. I don't know if you've... It would pick that up. People come in much more defiant against the word of God. Even professed Christians. Well, that's not what I think. That's not what I think. I don't think God's like that. Oh, well, why don't you come into these sessions and you tell me what you think God is like and then we'll see how we progress. All right? We're not here having coffee together. This isn't a time for us to sit at Panera and chew on some bread and talk about something ethereal. This is a time for us to look at the Word of God to tell us what He says He's like. You see? And even, even in the church, even professed Christians struggle anymore with the simple, even simple things about subjection and submission and obedience to the Word of God. Um, and that's significant. So all this means that when you begin with your counselee, that you have to be prepared to help them gain a biblical perspective of the God whom you serve. Um, they need a biblical perspective. And they often don't have it. Proverbs 1, chapter 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? So... Happy the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty, that has had a vision of God's awful greatness, his ineffable holiness, his perfect righteousness, his irresistible power, his sovereign grace. How sweet and awful is that place with Christ within earth's walls. That's what we're talking about. And the soul is happy that has been impressed with the majesty and the greatness, and the holiness, and the righteousness, and the power of God. That's what we were encouraged to think about, wasn't it, in the first hour. And so we need to help our counselees to get back to the description of Christians as being God-fearing, don't we? To be God-fearing. Scriptures say, to this man will I look. Will the Lord look even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and the man who trembles at my word? It's interesting in man's arrogance today, you know, and you often get this in the counseling setting, but in man's arrogance today, 
And people will come off with a statement like, well, I believe in God. I believe in God. You know, and claim some Christianity by that mere belief. Right? I believe in God. Well, James chapter 2 and verse 19 says, even the demons believe in God, and what do they do? They tremble. Isn't it interesting to see that man who says he believes in God is arrogant and cocky and swaggering before the God of heaven? But even the demons who believe in God, they believe and they tremble. Now, we certainly wouldn't say there's Christian demons. But, but, but how important is it for us to understand that if the demons believe and tremble, then what should we be like? You say, as we uh, understand God, what should we be like? Because this is exactly what Isaiah says. He's poor, he who is a a poor and a contrite spirit, he who trembles at my word, that man, says the Lord, I'll look at. You see? Nothing will foster this godly fear like a recognition of the sovereign majesty of God as is seen in his omniscience. So Romans 11, uh, 33 reminds us that such fear and trust of God are necessary due to the fact that our infinite minds will never be able to plumb the depths of God's wisdom, His knowledge, His judgments, or His ways. And so elemental to this trust is knowing that God does not make mistakes. His ways are perfect. This is where we come to understand an important axiom. And if I'm allowed to say this word, this is the mantra of our church. Okay? You get it? Mantra. Y'all with me still? Okay. The reality is this, especially in the evangelical community. I don't want to know God. I want to experience Him. You cannot experience what you do not know. Okay? And so in the end, this is something that is very significant. My faith must inform my feelings. My faith must inform my feelings. Paul says to Timothy, watch your life and doctrine closely because by them both you will persevere. I can't live what I don't know. And if I know it, I can live it. Right? Watch your life and doctrine closely. Doctrine isn't just for the missionary. It isn't just for the pastor. Let me tell you something. Doctrine is for your counselee. Understand? Doctrine is for your counselee. There's no, there's no shame in it. There's no shame in helping them to understand it. Why? Because then my faith can inform my feelings. Well, it doesn't feel like I can trust God because I'm depressed. It doesn't feel like I can trust God because I'm angry. It doesn't feel like I can trust God because my marriage is falling apart. How can I trust God when all of these things are happening? Let your faith inform your feelings. That is what so uh, begins to be so significant. Proverbs Sorry, sometimes it will feel as if God has made a mistake. You will hear of great trials and great difficulties, and you will hear of heartbreaking stories from those whom you counsel. Listen, here's an old axiom for the pastor. If there's a mist in the pulpit, there'll be a fog in the pew. I'm going to change that for the counseling. If there's a mist for you as the, as the counselor, in, in really yourself, having a faith and a trust in God. If there's a mystery, if somebody comes in and tells you uh, some heartbreaking story and, and, and you're kind of misty yourself, could God be in that? There's going to be a fog in your counseling. 
You've got to be convinced of these things yourself. And if you aren't, it's okay. Be honest about it. Perhaps you, as a, I remember when I first started the counseling training, I came in for everybody else. I started to take the counseling training for everybody else. And I was amazed to find how uh, psychologized I'd become in my own thinking. Right? And the Lord beginning to deal with things in here. You say, well, how can you talk to a counselee about that when that's the very thing you're dealing with? You haven't settled it in your own heart. Now, if you, as a counselor, if you as a counselor haven't settled these things in your mind, there's going to be a fog in the way that you counsel. You will hear heartbreaking stories. And if you're, if you're truly engaged in counseling, you will hear, and there's no shame in this, you will likely weep with those who tell you some of these stories. Your heart will be broken. Your heart will be broken by the parents whose baby has just died. Your heart will be broken. Your heart will be broken by the woman who comes in and tells you that her husband has walked out. And he's left her after 20 some years of marriage. Your heart will be broken. But brethren, understand this. A broken heart isn't sufficient for you to help them. A broken heart isn't enough. It's something. But it's not enough. You see, as your heart breaks with them, you get to show them the hope of being able to trust in God, even in that difficult circumstance. Now, if you're not convinced of it yourself, they'll pick that up. They'll know that. They will realize that. And so at these difficult times, you must help them to learn to pray that God will begin to allow their faith to inform their feelings. A faith which is anchored to God's omniscient plan for their lives. If as a counselor you're not personally convinced that God is worthy to be trusted, you will have great difficulty encouraging them to do so. And so you've got to search your own soul. And you know what? As a counselor, it's not as if you skip along life and you don't have to go through things yourself. You've got to live the, the, the pain of a, of, of a life that is still as the Puritans say, dealing with remaining sin. You've got to still deal with all those things yourself. And so you might have to get up in the morning. Listen, I'll be truthful. If there's times that I stand up to preach and I say these very things, and any of you that preach, um, I'm, I'm sure would say the same thing. Lord, help me to practice what, I, what it is I've just preached. And further, Lord, help me to believe what it is I'm preaching. You know, one of the easiest places to be an actor is behind the pulpit. I'm just telling you the truth. One of the easiest places to be an actor is behind the pulpit. Isn't it true? Isn't it true? 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 If any of you others are pastors, I'd point out you too and say true. One of the easiest places, our God, we come before thee today and thank thee for thy mercies through Christ. I mean, we can do it. But where are our own hearts in the issue? One of the easiest places, and your counseling will become very empty and very vapid if you're not dealing with these truths in your own heart. Just like a man's preaching will be empty and vapid if he's not dealing with these things in his own heart. See? This is engaging. That's what makes biblical counseling so unique. This is engaging. This isn't just some um, 
uh, incantations. These aren't just some paradigms that you throw out at people. This is life. This is knowing God. And this is be able to share that knowledge with those who come in. If you're not convinced of it yourself, if you really don't believe that the Word of God is enough, don't counsel. Put it down. Allow the Spirit of God to deal with your own heart. You will do more damage than you will good. But if you believe it, and if you're convinced of it, well, sometimes you may struggle. Sometimes you might hear something and say, well, only God can make this work for good. That's fine. That's fine. Pick up your Bible and counsel. Well, let's give a, a, then a, um, when we stop and think about it, when we know in our heart of hearts that God does not make any mistakes in our lives, God does know what he's doing. God is infinite His wisdom. He always knows what is best for us and what is the best way to bring about the result. So let's give it a fuller definition of wisdom. I have to explain. Normally, these notes are exactly opposite of the way that I normally teach. And so I'm by habit looking at another column and getting a little confused. But I'll be okay. Let's look then at a fuller definition of wisdom. For man, for man, wisdom is doing what we know we should or should not do given a particular situation. Wisdom is bound up with doing the will of the Lord. Clearly because we're still sinners we will not always do the wise thing. Isn't that true? I once heard a pastor preaching to his church and of course it was a very large church, about 4,000 people in the church and the pastor stood and he said to his people this with great flourish and, and so forth. He said, it's been six months since I committed a sin. And I was watching him, you know, I had my feet up and I'm watching him. I said, well, you just snapped your record <laughs> six months since he committed a sin. Right? Been six months since I committed a sin. Really? I'm watching that and I say, you know what? Mm, I agree more with the man who prayed like this. Lord, so far it's been a pretty good day. I haven't lied. I haven't lusted. I haven't kicked the dog. I met my commitments. But Lord, now I'm getting out of bed. And I'm going to ask your help for the rest of the day. I identify with that man. Right? Do you identify with that man? Because we're sinners, we will not always do the wise thing. Don't get an air about yourself because you're coming into counsel. The last thing your counselee needs to see is you acting all cocky. Right? Pastors, it works the same front. There is no arrogance in this. You know, it, it, we are exactly what we're laid out to be in Matthew 18. We are both fellow bond servants who have been freed of a debt that we couldn't pay. And so you have to recognize you'll deal with your own sinfulness, and you need to. You need to. There ought to be regular confession and regular repentance. That shouldn't be unusual for you. In fact, the more you're in the Word, it's my opinion, the more I'm in the Word, the more I'm confessing and repenting. And that's the way it's supposed to be. In addition, recognize our wisdom is finite. That's why we can agonize over making the proper decisions. 
but not so God's wisdom. God is infinitely wise because he selects the best possible end of action and because he adopts the best possible means for the accomplishment of the end which he has in view. Therefore, God never agonizes over what to do because he's God. He both knows and he does the best thing. You see, the kind of God that is presented so many times today, and he does it every time, the kind of God that is presented from so many pulpits today is a God who's unsure, is a God who's unsteady, is a God who says, oh, he no, he just did not. Oh, no. Now we got a plan B. That's not the God that we serve. The God who confessions tell us, ordain, let's do it in the right way, ordainest all things. This is, this, God isn't running around depending upon me. Did he blow it? Did he, did, was he successful? Hey, it's all good. We can keep going. It's a good way. Aren't you thankful? That's not the kind of God that we serve. He knows and he does the best thing and he does it every time. It's such a wonderful truth to be able to encourage your counsel he's with. In fact, they're coming to see you as a part of God's perfect plan for them. Do you ever tell people that? You know, one of the most important uh, dynamics that you want to have in counseling is hope. Right? You want to always be giving people hope. What, and what better hope than the Word of God? And here's something that I always say to counselees when they come in. And it's hard. It's hard to come to somebody, especially if you don't know them. It's hard to come to somebody and talk to them about things going on, you know, and failures and heartaches and hurts. And It's hard. We try to identify with that as a counselor. Hey, there's nothing different. You're not going through anything different than... We don't have to go through, but let's look, let's look at what the Word of God says to us together in these instances, right? Well, here's something that I always say to counselees. No matter what circumstance they brought, no matter what the issue is, I always say this to them. I want you to know something. I believe with all my heart that the God of heaven has sovereignly brought you to this place today. Not because you're going to see me, but because you're at least coming to sit before someone who's going to give you the Word of God. Right? Do you believe that when a counselee comes to see you? You know, we're not out there in the streets. We don't have people walking up and down the street with sandwich boards. You know, come for counseling, Earl Scheib, you know. We'll paint any color, any color, 19.99. Come in. We're not doing that. You know, we don't, you, you're not looking at us like these lawyers on television who are advertising, you know, have you been hit by an ambulance? We're the ones to help, you know. We're not out there doing, here's, let me, can I just tell you, we were doing counseling, our brother and I, we were talking last night. Full time in the ministry, right? I do at least, at least 15 to 18 hours of counseling a week. And you've never seen me on TV advertising, come on in for counseling. You don't need to do that. Because what ends up happening is people go out and say, hey, you know what? Um, there's a guy that's doing this thing called biblical counseling. And um, you've tried a lot of stuff, but... This has really been, wasn't that a testimony that we heard last night? Been there, done that. How many psychiatrists and psychologists taking her family to see? And somebody said, you know, there's a guy over there uh, that does biblical counseling. Maybe she should go over and, 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 and see what uh, the Bible says about some of this stuff. You don't need to be out there advertising like that. People will come because they'll have an understanding. Hey, what's going on there is real. It's, it's the true stuff. And as they come, you get to say to them, look, this is part of God's perfect plan. 
God has sovereignly brought you here. And by extension, then, God has sovereignly brought you to hear this. Not my wisdom, but the wisdom of his word. And that is such a blessing. So what's the best thing that God will bring about in every situation? For every counselee, it is to bring glory to himself. A part of that glory is also promising to bring good to those who are his. Have you ever thought God could bring glory to himself but never make us a promise that it would work out for our good? But that doesn't tell us about the character of God. So the chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy himself forever, says Piper. Therefore, God will always act in wisdom and his action will bring glory to himself and always be for our best good. So consider what Christianity would be if God always was brought glory, but there was no promise that this would always be for our best good. Consider then how blessed we are knowing that God promises His glory will be for our best good, and look, brethren, every time. Jerry Bridges says something that I think is, is really wonderful in, in that book, Trusting God, and it's, it's ministered to me over the course of my life. I read that book a long time ago. I've reread it. I've taught it. And it's ministered to me, and it's this simple statement. God never wastes pain. That's something? God never wastes pain. I don't know what pain you're going through. I don't know what heartache you might have to endure. But I know in the character of God, God is not wasting that pain. See? That's how it is that we can trust in the character of God even through difficult circumstances. So although we can't or won't always be able to understand His ways, although God's plan won't always feel like it's good, we must learn to trust God knowing that His ways are indeed best. Deuteronomy 29, 29 The secret things belong to who? Belong to God. So God promises to bring about His glory and our best good and it is His wisdom that will always bring this about. Now, Pink states the following. It is not blind fate, unbridled evil, man or devil, but the Lord Almighty who is ruling the world, ruling it according to his own good pleasure and for his own eternal glory. And further then, our business is not to reason about it, but to bow to Holy Scripture. Our first duty is not to understand but to believe what God has said. It doesn't get much better than that right there. Our duty is to bow. It is to submit. I think we'll see that um, in the next hour as well. So, we serve a God who brings beauty out of ashes. When we experience tragedy or watch others, we often are prone, even ourselves, to ask God why. We do so because we're unable to see any possible good to us or even how God could bring himself any good from such hurt and such pain. However, the wisdom of God is better displayed when he brings good to us and glory to himself out of confusion and calamity rather than out of the pleasant times. Only God could work this out. Haven't you said that in your own life? Only God could have worked us out and made it good. Only God could have taken the hurt and the heartache and the pain and the sorrow and made it good. And every time God does that, it should increase our trust in Him. But you see, our problem 
and your counselee's problem is this. Stuart Scott said this about two years ago when he was here, and I haven't forgotten it. Some of you men were maybe here. Talking about Jesus and the disciples and feeding them the 5,000, right? And what is it, a week and a half, maybe two, a week later? The same disciples, big crowd, same Jesus, and they come up to him and say, hey, these people are hungry. What are we going to do? I mean, really? Isn't it a wonder that sometimes Jesus looks to his guys and says, how long have I been with you? How long have I been with you? You know, sometimes we might think it's funny that Jesus challenges Peter. As he walks across the water to him and Peter begins to sink. And Jesus says to Peter, you know, Peter says just that short little prayer, which by the way shows us pastors as there's room for short little prayers. Lord, save me. Now there's time for prayer that is thought out and even written. I've written out prayers. There's time for that. God, our Father, who have created all things, even the water upon which I stand. I come before thee acknowledging my sinfulness, your holiness. I mean, there's place for that prayer, but not right then. Peter's sinking, Lord, save me. And what does Jesus say to him? You of... Mm. Now just think about that for a minute. Who is still in the boat? Only Peter had the faith to swing his legs out over the side of that boat and start walking. Only Peter had that faith. And when he comes, and we think that's pretty good faith. I mean, I think I've been in a boat like this. Go see Peter. Go see if that's really Jesus. Go on now. Right? And Peter gets there and Jesus says, after he lifts him out, he must have been very close because the text doesn't say that Jesus had to go to him. I think just reached out and pulled him up. So Peter must have been very close. Jesus pulls him out. Oh, there's so much we could say about that passage. You know, it shows us the character of Jesus. Like, had it been me, I probably would have said, hey, it takes three times to drown. We're going to teach you a lesson. <laughs> you know, be thankful, right? Shows us the character of Jesus. And he reaches immediately. The text says, immediately Jesus reaches out and he pulls up Peter. And he says to Peter, Oh, you have little faith. Now, humanly, we might say to ourselves, that's a little tough. I wonder why the Lord was so tough. What? Because as Stuart Scott said, here's our problem. We often live from event to event and our faith never increases. We live from event to event and we see that God has been faithful. And when our trust should increase, when our faith should increase, it doesn't. And the next time we have to go through another situation... The next time calamity arises, we run around and say, who's going to feed all these people? See? So we have this great opportunity to grow in our faith and to be encouraged to encourage others that the wisdom of God is involved in what they're facing. So we know that we live in a world which wants to drive us away from following God and that we have an enemy who seeks to devour us. And, and, and that is very true, isn't it? He seeks to devour us. He's a roaring lion. In addition, even as Christians, we still have to endure physical affliction, disappointment, and the heartache that these bring. Your counselee must then be encouraged to understand that it is through these, not in spite of them, that God's wisdom is displayed by using these for their best good and thus bring glory to himself. It is in this way that he brings beauty out of ashes 
This can take time, but it is a part of the promise of God to us. He takes under his hand all the forces of wickedness that are aimed at us and works them for good. He allows the hurt and heartache, knowing that this is what it takes to make us more like his precious son. What we must all realize is that the good that God brings is often different from the good that we see for ourselves. When this is the case, we see then that it is our own thoughts which have to be changed and not God's. Why? Because he is God, remember, and he knows best. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. I make known from the end to the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Well, what then is God's purpose for us? Well, it's holiness out of adversity. Now, we're all familiar with Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, right? All things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. But many times we stop there at verse 28. And you've had counselees say to you, and so have I, but what's the good in this? How could there be good in this? Well, if we stop at verse 28, it's kind of hard to explain. But if we continue on to verse 29, you have been predestined to be conformed to... Ah. You've been predestined to look like Jesus through this. See? That's the good. You've been predestined to look like Jesus through this. So what is, what is an important good that God promises which evidently could not come then without that adversity? Looking more like Jesus Christ. The good that God works for us in our lives is conformity to the likeness of His Son. It is not necessarily comfort or happiness, but conformity to Christ in ever-increasing measure in this life and in its fullness in eternity. This truth helps us to be less concerned with our losses and crosses, as Packer states, and more concerned with looking like Jesus. God knows and promises what he promises is what he wants us to become. He also knows what circumstances are best to bring us that result in our lives. And we see this principle paralleled in Hebrews 12.10 with parenting. Our fathers, the text says, disciplined us for a while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good. Why? That we might share in his holiness. See here the goal then of God's dealings with us. It is his holiness in us. This is the very thing that was lost in the garden. So God's infinite wisdom knows how to blend both the bad and the good and how much of each will be necessary to make us more like Jesus Christ and thus holy. The purpose of God's discipline is not to punish us but to transform us. He's already meted out punishment for our sins upon Jesus at Calvary. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. But we must be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose of discipline. And that's why then the psalmist said, oh, sorry, sorry. Did I skip one? That's why the psalmist says, I'll be all right in a minute. He doesn't want to go there. 
Isn't that it? It was good. Amen. It was good to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. It was good for me to be afflicted. Why? Because it taught me your decrees. So in this sense, God's discipline is not seen as punitive action upon us, but a training activity upon us. As an athlete is disciplined or a specialist learns his discipline. This too is where we have to learn to think biblically in the how and the why God deals with us in the ways that he does. Thus we can say with the hymn writer, let, look at page 5, this, this hymn I love. Day by day and with each passing moment strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry nor for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure knows unto each day to give what is best, lovingly. Okay, just think of this line now. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. You know, it doesn't really get much better than that for an uninspired writing. That God, every day, knows the exact recipe of pleasure and pain to help me to look more like Jesus. And so it's never too much. It might feel like it, but that's when my feelings have to inform my faith. Uh, sorry, sorry, sorry. My faith has to inform my feeling. Uh, edit that on the tape. <laughs> my faith has to inform my feelings. Okay? So God in his infinite wisdom knows exactly what adversity we need to grow more and more into the likeness of his son. He not only knows what we need, but when we need it and how best to bring it to pass in our lives. He's the perfect teacher or coach. His discipline is always exactly suited for our needs. He never overtrains us by allowing too much adversity in our lives. God never specifically explains during the trial. What makes trusting such difficulty for us and for your counselees is the fact that we may know the ultimate goal, which we've discussed, but we don't see how this trial can be used to get us there. Therefore, we struggle not to be angry at God, disappointed or hurt. We struggle with the why of the circumstance. And this is what we see transpiring through the book of Job, isn't it? There are 16 whys in the book of Job, according to author Don Baker. Sixteen times Job asked God why. He is persistent and petulant. He is accusatory toward God and as has been observed by many. God never answered Job's whys. Instead he answers who. Hmm, what a difference. He answers who. You see when we realize the promises of God to us in our circumstance. We can begin to see these struggles understandable as they are, ununderstandable as they are, as sins that need to be confessed. We may not demand of a sovereign creator that he explain himself to his creatures. God had a good and sufficient reasons for his actions. We trust his sovereign wisdom and love. The issue is not in the asking. Rather, the issue is in the way that we do the asking. I once taught a Bible study and um, said something about we have to be careful about asking God, whatever it was. And um, a couple took some umbrage with me. 
at that, you know, and said, God can ask, God can take our questions, God isn't afraid of our asking why, you know, we, we should ask God why, and so forth. Okay, I said, yes, that's true, but it's in the way that you do it. And there's a great difference between asking God, why? Why? The great difference to that than this, right? Why? Why? Difference? Difference is where? Yeah. You know, God isn't afraid. And, and, you know, they made it off like I thought God was afraid of our wives. It's what God isn't afraid of our wives. Are you kidding? But it's all in the way that we ask. It's all in the way that we do the asking. You're not doing a counseling any favor to come and say to them, you know, ask God why. God's not, ask Him why. Demand of God. He, he'll answer you. He'll give it to you. What? That's not at all what our, what our Bibles tell us as we learn to trust God. We should never ask a demanding why. We may and should ask God to enable us to understand what he may be teaching us through a particular experience. But even here we must be careful that we're not seeking to satisfy our souls by finding some spiritual good in the adversity. Rather we must trust God that he is working in the experience for our good. Even when we see no beneficial results. We must learn to trust God when he doesn't tell us why. When we don't understand what he is doing. And that brings us to remember Romans 11. God's ways are what? Unsearchable. Incomprehensible. Look, that's all right. If I could explain God to you, would you want to worship that God? When I was coming to struggle years ago with the sovereignty of God, and I was struggling with all kinds of things under that heading, and I was, and you don't have to concur with this, but I'll just tell you a part, you know, coming to struggle with the doctrine of election and all that, I was struggling with uh, some of those things. A man said to me one time, are you struggling with the sovereignty of God? I said, yes, yes I, I am. I'm struggling to understand that. He said, let me explain it all to you. And I said, I just put my hand up, I said, thank you, brother, but don't bother. I said, because if you can explain it to me, then you and I already have a, diff a different definition of the sovereignty of God. Right? God's ways are incomprehensible. Lest we think that God does owe us an explanation, we're reminded that the deep thoughts of God are not understandable to man. And this is why we must learn to trust Him. Where would the trust be if we could understand Him? This is why we should be thankful that He makes promises to bring about our best good through all the circumstances of life because we can't always understand what he's doing for my thoughts are not your thoughts and neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts how futile and even arrogant for us to seek to determine what God is doing in a particular event or circumstance we simply cannot search out the reasons behind his decisions or trace out the ways by which he brings those decisions to pass Of this truth, Spurgeon states, Providence is wonderfully intricate. Ah, you want to always see through providence, do you not? You never will, I assure you. You've not eyes good enough. 
You want to see what good that affliction was to you? You must believe it. You want to see how it can bring good to the soul? You may be enabled in a little time, but you cannot see it now. You must believe it. Honor God by trusting Him. How? In prayer, admit to God that you do not have to understand, but ask Him to help you trust. Ask Him to help you trust. And so then that brings us to this. Don't interpret, but learn. As counselors, we have to be very careful not to be those who would offer themselves as the interpreters about the how and the why of God's dealings in our counselee's particular circumstance. Don't you go there. Be wary of telling them why God has brought this to pass. We do not want to be like Job's friends. The fact is that we do not know what God is doing through a particular set of circumstances or events. While we cannot always know, we can give them comfort, take comfort from the fact that God does. So don't interpret. Help them to learn. God's wisdom is greater than that of our adversaries. No matter who may be against us, no matter how smart or cunning, God's wisdom is greater. Other people, for various reasons, may plan and scheme to treat us unjustly, to take advantage of us, or to use us for their own selfish ends. And you may face counselees going through such a circumstance. But Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. And so we must remember that God's sovereignty, His providence, and His wisdom mean that even the most nefarious schemes of our adversaries can only accomplish what God has sovereignly ordained for us and in His infinite wisdom skillfully brings to pass. Alright, that brings us then to this. It should fill us with joy that infinite wisdom guides the affairs of the world. Many of its events are shrouded in darkness and mystery and inextricable confusion sometimes seems to reign Often wickedness prevails and God seems to have forgotten the creatures he has made. Our own path through life is dark and devious and beset with difficulties and dangers. How full of consolation is the doctrine that infinite wisdom directs every event, brings order out of confusion and light out of darkness, and to those who love God causes all things, whatever their present aspect and apparent tendency, to work together for good. And God's people said, Amen. Right? Amen. And so, the great challenge is to help them to trust in God's omniscience. The comfort of God's wisdom. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, brethren, the wonder of biblical counseling is being privileged to be able to point those who are hurting, questioning, or struggling to the comfort of God's knowledge. For knowing all things, God promises His own that He is working out all the events of their lives according to His perfect wisdom. And in a world that may seem out of control, counselees can be encouraged to know that God is ru ruling, and He is ruling wisely. Alright? 
uh, you have a question or a comment, we have, I want this to be written down. We're ending five minutes early. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Please forgive my boasting. All right, question or comment? It's a comfort, isn't it? And we rejoice. All right, Lord bless you. Thank you.